All right. So good morning. I'm Paul Ellis. Uh, I'm going to continue our discussion this week of signs and symbols in early Christian art. Brad Chrysler, he's back this morning. He was in camp last week. He's, he's doing worship. He'll be back with us uh, the next week uh, to take us probably out of the non-narrative section into some more uh, familiar scenes. Uh, this week, I'm going to wrap up my thoughts on the non-narrative works we see in the period of Christianity that leads up to and enters that Constantinian, post-Constantinian period where the church is no longer the uh, persecuted um, cult or religion of the time and then becomes the official religion. Uh, In our discussion so far, so uh, non-narrative works are those that represent ideas and values rather than particular renderings of, say, a Bible story Um, like you would see in The Last Supper. Uh, It's a famous piece depicting some very specific scripture. Although there is some crossover between where you'll see stories uh, that you would easily recognize, but in a non-narrative use. Um, Last week, we dove into the idea that uh, the symbols depicted in many early Christian works are not original ideas to them, but borrowed from the preceding and contemporary pagan cultures. And uh, there seems to be a combination of, you know, the... We're going to speak a common language to these people uh, to spread our religion. And then on the other end of some uh, outright appropriation as it becomes the official religion. And that's when you see a lot of these works um, is in that area, in that era uh, around Constantine and the catacombs and things like that. We had discussed earlier that you don't see a lot of it in the first and second centuries because they're still associated with the Jewish Jewish religion that uh, forbids uh, use of symbols. That's one main reason. There's a few others, uh, and we've gotten to that in previous weeks. Uh, so Christianity becomes the dominant religion after Constantine, and I believe we'll cover more of that in the weeks to come. Uh, This morning we're going to discuss three specific areas, Uh, symbols of the fisher and the fish, uh, the bottom right being a symbol of a fish along with some loaves, Uh, portrayals of fish and meal scenes, which is a category I didn't even know about before getting into this, Uh, that's on the top right, and then finally we're going to talk about portrayals of vine and wheat symbols as we can see there on the left. uh, hopefully this week I'm, I'm designing it to do you know enough that we have five to ten minutes at the end for some discussion. We had some good in the middle last week, but I put out some ideas and hopefully you've been chewing on them. So I've I blocked out about ten minutes at the end. So if you have anything that you think of this week or that you've been thinking about over the last week that you'd like to bring up, especially in the area of last week when we we talked about our conclusions that uh, you had these early pagan representations in uh, funeral settings that were the same as the Christian ones. And so we had these ideas of what happens, you know, when we die. And they were the same ideas. So if you ascribe to Christianity, you you probably are saying one of these is wrong. And now you have to look at the fact that, okay, well, what's actually from God and what is a question that we have that other religions have that we've just come up with our best answer because we feel like we need it and projected that on God. So if anything uh, has come to your mind in the last week or or you think of anything now, we'll have that blocked off at the end. uh, but just say, put a pin in it, save it, and uh, and then we'll get to it then. Uh, the symbols of the fisher and the fish. We'll start there. They're grouped together because of a common interpretive connection, but you can see a lot of categories here. Uh, this typically shows up as a depiction of either a single fisherman with his line in the water, uh, a man wrestling with a large fish, multiple fishermen casting nets, and then the fish symbol either by itself or it would be in conjunction with like chalice and loaves 
or uh, with the anchor symbol, which we've talked about at the very beginning of this course, um, all of which show up you know, in the pagan setting and in the Christian setting by context. So the Greco-Roman culture made good use of maritime symbols, uh, those surrounding fish, prior to Christianity. Uh, it makes them a, a good source of common language to, uh, to talk about the emerging religion and also where just new converts would bring over symbols you know, from their previous life. Uh, dolphins were used quite a bit, if you can believe it. Those are dolphins. Um, now they, they didn't, of course, they didn't have the Discovery Channel where you had some good footage of them. You can think about how fast you would see a dolphin come up and out of the water, and maybe compare that to some fish you've caught. And this is what they came up with. Uh, this one is Eros or Cupid, as he was often depicted riding a dolphin, and this was used to symbolize everything from the uh, the soul's journey to affection, uh, to soul's destiny. Uh, it, it's not the typical depiction you think of with Cupid with the, you know, the diaper and the arrows and the, the little wings and everything. Um, this is a lot of what would have been in the minds of people in the uh, early Christian community surrounding fish and dolphins if they had any uh, interaction, which they did with the Greco-Roman world, which had pretty much taken over at that point. The dolphin, uh, the common fish symbol, was originally associated with the Dionysian cult um, where the dolphin was one of the beasts sacred to Dionysus. Um, and in, then in one legend, Dionysus is traveling at sea and attacked by pirates. All but one of the pirates uh, don't realize it's a god, so they try to rob him, and then he turns all of them except for that one into dolphins. Uh, I'm still not sure what to make of that, but it, it's, uh, it's a fun story from the background of this one. But the best uh, place I've heard to describe uh, the dolphin representation associated with the afterlife, which is particularly interesting to us, as we'll see it show up in, in catacombs later. It says, uh, this is a PBS article, in later myths, particularly in Roman literature, and again in art and statuary, it is the dolphin that carries souls to the islands of the blessed. And around the Black Sea, images of dolphins have been found in the hands of the dead, presumably to ensure their safe passage to the afterlife. So taken together, these references seem to point to a deeper association with the processes of life, death, and rebirth, perhaps linked to the dolphin's ability to pass between the air-breathing, living world of humans and the suffocating, terrifying world beneath the waves, which for the Greek sailors could easily uh, be identified with the kingdom of the dead. Whatever the exact symbolism, it is clear that the dolphin is intimately involved with the fundamentals of human existence. Uh, so between these associations of life and death and the common use of maritime art, even just for aesthetic purposes that you would see in the Greco-Roman world where the Christian community emerges, it's easy to see how this was a natural step for the Christian faith to adopt this symbol. So when the Christians do adopt these symbols, there are obvious references uh, from the scriptures of the Jewish tradition and the gospel stories that you naturally think of. Uh, Jonah and the whale that we see in the image here, this is a sarcophagus that we looked at last week. On the bottom left, you see the serpent uh, coming around the corner, This is, and then uh, you have Jonah lying down um, and uh, has just been spit up by the fish in this depiction. But uh, you'll also see uh, things that would remind you of Christ uh, calling his fishers of men or uh, even the, uh, the fish that supplies the coin for the taxes uh, for Christ. However, in, in the broader sense, it's the combination of these stories that function as a larger non-narrative work and a larger symbol for baptism. So this sarcophagus of uh, Maria Antiqua combines depictions of fishers, baptism, 
uh, Jonah and other symbols that we discussed in the previous week. You can see the Orans, uh, the Good Shepherd, and the Seated Philosopher. But what, what's harder to see is that they're actually all connected by flowing water. Uh, it starts on the left end coming out of a jug uh, from what's uh, sort of a god figure of the Jordan River and connects all of these scenes to the, until it gets to the other end where you see fishermen casting their nets. Uh, so this brings me to a point that I had actually not thought of before preparing for this week. Uh, where we often associate fish and fishermen symbols with thoughts of evangelism, the early Christians saw themselves as being caught by Christ in the baptism, saw themselves as, as the fish. Um, I think a lot of that, for me at least, and it's probably common to others of you who are raised in the church, when we got to verses like, you know, go and being fishers of men, it was more associated with the Great Commission for us because we just assumed, oh, we're already part of this club. Um, we don't need caught. We were born in the net, so to speak. Whereas they saw themselves as the fish being caught. Um, the early Christian writer Tertullian says, Concerning our sacrament of water by which we are liberated to eternal life, we little fishes, after the example of our ichthus, ichthus being the, the fish that you've seen, we'll get to in a minute, Jesus Christ, are born in water, nor in any way than by permanently abiding in water are we safe. And then later, uh, Cyril of Jerusalem, about 100 years later, said to a group preparing to be baptized, they were in uh, what's called catechism, where you go over the doctrines and then in the end you, you get baptized. So right before they go through this rite, they said, you are fish caught in the net of the church. Let yourself be taken alive. Don't try to escape. It is Jesus who is playing you on his line, not to kill you, but by killing you to make you alive. So, of course, beyond the thought of, uh, of Christians as fish caught by Christ, we have this more familiar symbol of Christ as the fish. Uh, now, this is the image you've seen on plenty of people's bumpers driving around. And uh, the acrostic, as we've mentioned before, stands for uh, Greek words, the Yesu Christu Theuiosator, which is Jesus Christ, uh, God's Son, Savior. Uh, however, that was not the original thought. This wasn't an early Christian community thought. It actually doesn't come out explicitly in writings uh, until about 400 AD. And a lot of like the Tertullian writings and things like that were talking around 150 AD. And then these, uh, these catacombs were around 300. So uh, although it is familiar to us and it was used in the early Christian community, it's not so much the overarching thought in the context we've been talking about for the last few weeks. It will come into play later on. Uh, what I think of as the predecessor of the acrostic is the writings of Tertullian, Clement, and Abertius in the uh, late 2nd century AD. Uh, Abertius actually wrote his own epitaph before he dies, which we see here, and it has connection to the earlier thoughts of Christ as the fish, what they would have been thinking of as, as Christ as the fish. Um, he says, uh, part, of, part of this, it's not the whole thing, but the important part is, faith everywhere led me forward, and everywhere provided me as my food a fish of exceeding great size and perfect, <clears throat> which a holy virgin drew with her hands from a fountain, and this faith ever gives it uh, gives to its friends to eat, it having wine of great virtue and giving it mingled with bread. So we see here the representation of Christ as a fish uh, is both uh, symbolic of salvation and it plays into Eucharist symbology, which we're going to get into later. Um, but, you know, that, uh, that communion meal, which was different earlier on. 
so with all that in mind, you can look at this work from uh, the Catacomb of St. Sebastian and see the fish portrayed. It's in the middle. Uh, it's flanked on two sides. Uh, on the left, you can see the anchor symbol, uh, which we talked about, and I'll, I'll explain <coughs> again in a moment, and the hero symbol. Uh, the anchor symbol, it represented uh, in the pagan world and then in the Christian world, safety in hard times and uh, both hope for the future. And then the hero is the symbol that Constantine claimed uh, when entering the city to take the throne that God came and said in this sign, conquer, uh, which you know has the, uh, the Christian association with it. So given this context, uh, the viewer or the maker would uh, have a sense of hope and uh, safety for the deceased in Christ, since this is a, a funerary setting. And the fish would probably be both representative of Christ and the soul caught by Christ. Uh, here's another example. Uh, this one is the uh, the two fish on the anchor. This is the catacomb of Domitila, which we've seen other works from, and also would emote that hope for Christians, particularly in the context of uh, the deceased loved one and possibly some martyrs. Uh, one final note on the use of the fish. Uh, in the There would have been some eschatological notes, uh, thoughts about end times. The Jewish culture, particularly, uh, which you know had the roots and carried those roots into the uh, sort of post-Jewish close association that you see in later Christianity. Um, but the Jewish culture, uh, when they would see strife with the fish, that was associated with this eschatological belief uh, that the beginning of the Messianic age would begin with the eating of the great sea creature or Leviathan, uh, which you'll be familiar with. So, in, in, like in Psalm 74. Uh, that would have been in the mind of the reader. After lamenting, like, where is God? Why hasn't God come to save us? It gets into the part that says, But God is my king from long ago. He brings salvation on the earth. Uh, it was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. So this is a close-up of that uh, that sarcophagus we saw a moment ago. Um, so Jonah here, uh, when we had mentioned earlier that there are some narrative works that function in the non-narrative sense as they're a symbol for multiple things and not just a depiction of the story, you have Jonah here that off bat you would say, yeah, uh, that's, that's Jonah and the whale. But then you also would think of uh, Jonah as a type for Christ. And with that uh, Jewish eschatological view, you would, you would think of uh, a end times defeating the beast and then a Eucharist thought in that early Christian community of this defeated beast being fed uh, to the people in the desert. So, uh, as you can see, for, for the early Christians, the fish symbol was more than just an acrostic. I like to think of it as Swiss Army symbolism. Um, that, that Swiss Army knife, uh, it represents Christ who was both the fish and the fisherman uh, and this, this eschatology of the fish being defeated. Um, it's closer to that Swiss Army knife than, say, a three-quarter socket wrench, which is for a very specific purpose. So now uh, this will lead into our next area of discussion, which would be fish and meal scenes. Uh, in meal scenes in early Christian art, you almost always see fish in the work. Uh, however, it's hard to say. It's not always clear if the fish symbol, like we just talked about, uh, is a reference to an actual story from the Gospels or just a fish from an actual meal in an early Christian story um, or if there was just fish at the table in whatever they were thinking about. Uh, it takes a lot of context, and there's still debate over a lot of works. 
So prior to Christianity, once again, we'll look at the the, uh, the pagan use of it and then where Christianity takes a hold of it. Greek and Roman funeral art, uh, paintings and mosaics in these houses of the dead and catacombs and on sarcophagi made common use of the banquet motif. Uh, the work on the top is a more common depiction. You have reclined diners around uh, on the bottom right, a three-legged stool or table. Um, and the, uh, the one on the bottom is less commonly used, but it's of either the deceased or the wife of the deceased on a uh, flat seat and uh, being attended to by servants. Um, so the basic banquet scene used by the early Christian community is well represented here in this, uh, in this one from the Catacomb of Callistus. It has uh, the characteristic uh, number of diners you'll see seated in a half cube or a half circle table. It's usually seven people dining at the table. You see this circular table. Uh, on it are our fish. It's hard to see uh, in this representation. Uh, you can see they're surrounded by uh, bushels of bread. Uh, often you will see uh, the bread just on the table in single loaves with a he on it, which is you know another reference to Christ. And you can see in the very bottom of this, this is directly where someone's body would have been laid to rest and probably covered with plaster um, tiles if they were rich. <clears throat> At first glance, uh, it would be very easy to take this as a Last Supper depiction, and some do make that argument, but that's unlikely given the number of people in the elements of this particular meal. It can also be taken as a Eucharist representation, uh, likely with uh, some reference to the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, especially with these, these bushels of bread and the fish on the table. Uh, however, at the time that this was, this was likely made, you know, much closer to the late 300s, uh, the Eucharist had been pretty formalized and wasn't uh, you know, a fun meal like you think of in the early church in the Acts community that gathered on the first day of the week and was really enjoying life together. There was, uh, there was much more pomp and circumstance to it. The most likely explanation here is one that we've had before where you know, they're, they're bringing in their old beliefs or, or you know, sort of meshing together with that. Um, Romans had, had, a, had long practiced eating banquet meals at the grave sites of their dead relatives. And there would often be a place uh, in that setting where you could actually leave a portion of the food and the drink for the deceased. And we found impressions of where that had been left in many catacombs. Um, this practice was often portrayed on their sarcophagi and in the catacombs. Um, so as we've seen before, the Christian community is adopting this practice, or more likely, uh, the, these new converts from the, the uh, Greco-Roman world have practiced this, and their, their parents and their grandparents have practiced it. And so when someone passes, that's something very close to their hearts that they want to take with them. And I think my, my theory is that because it was a loving community early on, um, you know, and the religion was so alive with that love, uh, that, you know, they said, it's okay. And they, they were like, we'll meet you in the middle. Um, at least that's my hope. So lastly, uh, what we talked about earlier, the fish as an eschatological symbol should not be dismissed, especially in the funerary context. Um, we're, we're finding these, uh, these depictions, like this fish with the bread, uh, on, on tombs and on sarcophagi. The fish's presence at the meal can seem out of place in the Eucharist setting since you know this is a bread and wine meal in, in, uh, in, in the accounts. And some argue that uh, it's meant to point out uh, to the discussion of the eschatology that we talked about before, not just 
in uh, in the Old Testament. It's not really explicit there, but if you get into the pseudepigrapha, which is some uh, some writings that don't make uh, some canons and make some others, uh, and in the Talmud, which is some Jewish discuss- discussions about the scriptures, um, you find that represented. The account generally goes that at, uh, at one point God with the angel Gabriel catch Leviathan, uh, dismember Leviathan, cook it up, and serve it to the righteous or the pious at the messianic feast. So these banquet scenes in the context of death and with the symbolism that they carry uh, give a good example of the now and not yet that we're all familiar with uh, when we're struggling with the questions of what's going to come and where are we at in the process. Um, The feast is shared now and anticipates the feast to come. So that's why we see this represented quite a bit as they struggle with the same questions that the pagans did that made the same symbols that they adopt. Uh, Finally, we're going to look at the use of uh, grapevines and bundles of wheat as they were used in the early Christian community. Uh, Now in the earlier uh, and contemporary, contemporary with the early Christian community pagan uses, the use of these images, particularly grapevines, was widespread. Uh, they had, of course, the associations with Dionysus and, uh, and wine. Um, they also would be used to uh, talk about hopes for abundance and hopes for, for fertility. And uh, specifically, um, there was a representation of spring for rain and bundle, or spring for grain, bundles of grain, and then uh, a representation of fall for grapes, as those were the associated times of harvest. Uh, for that community. The typical grape harvest scene was similar to this one where we see uh, there's uh, these cherubic almost figures. They're, they're supposed to be sort of young children. They're gathering the grape uh, off of the grapevines. But this is, a, uh, this is obviously a Christian depiction because in the center you see the, uh, the good shepherd that we've talked about in previous weeks. And the harvest scene was often used by both Christian and pagan communities in the funerary context to express a hope of afterlife for the deceased. They would often depict that, you know, this is where I hope they are. And that was as good as it got, too, back then. Uh, if you had an abundant harvest, if you had fertility, if th- those were the things that you really hoped for. That bucolic setting was often used in funerary scenes as a hope for, you know, this is, this is where I hope they are, this is where I hope I go. Um, there are also good arguments that the grape motif in particular was just used for aesthetic appeal. Um, you know, you, you'd, see a, you'd see a lot of people just decorating around with grapevines everywhere, and there wasn't a whole lot of context to it. They just liked it. Um, however, as the Christian community uses the symbol more, the obvious parallel between Christ's statement of I'm the vine, you are the branches, uh, it comes into play and eventually takes over that motif to where we get today, and you see that and you obviously think of that reference. And that was because Christianity took over as the dominant religion of an empire and was handed down from empire to empire until this current empire. Um, Many writers refer to Christ and Christians using metaphors of the bruising of the grape. They'll talk about uh, wine being the power of the Holy Spirit and so on. Um, and, And that is a very wide collection of writings, which you're welcome to dive into. Uh, but it really just gets into they're just taking taking it and talking about it and using it to express a view that you already know. Um, so to get into this time of uh, hopefully any discussion or any questions that you might have, uh, I want to pause again to reiterate what we what we touched on last week that there's a lesson that we we need to learn that we need to look at in the parallels of early Christian art 
and the pagan culture that was before it where they're the same symbols, they're the same questions that they're asking, and they're the same answers that they're ascribing to whatever deity or belief that they have. Um, I love Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and he has a wonderful question that he'll ask people when uh, when they're really just entrenched in, in a belief that they haven't examined, and you can tell they haven't examined. Um, my favorite is uh, in... There's a book called The Book of Joy, which is interviews with him and the Dalai Lama, who have the greatest bromance that has ever happened. Like, they get mischievous when they're around each other. You can look up a YouTube promo of the book, and then I encourage you to listen to it because they actually do the voices of uh, both of them in it. But, you know, they're talking about um, heaven and hell, and uh, and he... He says, uh, he, he says, you know, I, I talk to people and I ask them, do you really believe this thing you're saying? And then he'll repeat it to them. And in this case, he said, you know, oh, I can see uh, my friend the Dalai Lama here gets up to heaven. And God says, oh, Dalai Lama, you've, you've done such a wonderful job. You've helped so many people be good human beings. But I'm sorry, it's such a pity you're not a Christian. You're going to have to go to the warm place. You know, and, then you, and he says, do you really believe what you're saying? And a lot of people have to step back. And, and once it's been said to them that way, they go, oh, you know what? I'm going to have to step back. Or they get a little tighter and they get more entrenched in their belief, especially if they were online. Um, as you say, so. so, do you really believe uh, what they're saying? I, I think the, a great place to start is by looking at these depictions and, and especially around um, where we should start looking if you don't already have a place, is in what we actually believe about uh, death, heaven, hell. Um, as I've said before, there's a lot more Dante and uh, divine comedy in what we believe than there is what the original church actually was preaching, resurrection and the kingdom of God. Um, and an unexamined faith is, is harmful to you and harmful to others. So uh, I'd go ahead and uh, before we transition into next week... Um, does anybody have any thoughts? Have you been thinking about anything or just anything from class today? We've got about five or ten minutes where we can discuss. And maybe you can educate me, hopefully, because uh, i got a lot of questions. On, on the one with the, the sarcophagus of Callistus, yeah. and this is probably a small thing, but uh, they're all sitting upright, and I guess that's third century. I'm just wondering, and, you know, some of the earlier ones are reclining like we'd expect, but they were sitting upright in that one. I'm wondering if there's anything to that. Have they just changed by then? Generally, the most common depiction is in, uh, in a uh, sigma-shaped uh, reclined uh, position. So I'm not sure what there is to that on the, on the Callistus depiction. They might actually be reclined. Um, and it's just hard to see because the... Yeah, they are difficult. Talking about this fish and meal scene here? Uh, no, it was the farther back where they were on the... This one? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> the the Put the loaves of the fish to the side. Ah, yes. Put the loaves to the side. Uh, here we are. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. And, yeah, I was after having seen the other one reclining, they all look like they're they look like they're sitting up, although it's tough to say. It is tough to say. Obviously this doesn't have the same uh, talent. <laughs> that you would see, like in, in the contemporary uh, context, um, they almost look like like this. Looks like it could be from Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. It's a little bit off. Um, so. It might be. It could have included it. Strangely, like baskets of potatoes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could understand this if we found it in Ireland. Um, I would definitely co-opt that for the troubles, but. 
All right. Anyone else? Paul, it's interesting to me that so much of what Jesus taught is based off of what people were already thinking at the time. Mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder, like, you have 12 men, but four of them were fishers, fishermen. Like, so, and also because of, you know, just you, you, who he came across, it makes you wonder that if he had come across in a non-seafaring place, would there be other, would we hear other teachings that were not necessarily so based off of Fisher, or is that the the working of God so that what people were used to and hearing in the in the in the Roman gods and stuff like that that he could take and that's why he had a third of his followers be in an industry that he could relate to what other people were learning. I, I wonder that too and then there's one more thing I wonder about that related to it is is that actually the way that it happened or is that the way the story was told because the earliest gospels don't show up until decades after the time of Christ and it's not necessarily that they're trying to uh, tweak the story although that's been done in copies people have added to scripture um, and then it was taken out when people found out about it but maybe that's the way they were trying to tell the story as, as they were like yeah you know I remember this did happen well let's really push that point forward uh, on the other hand, you also see in the uh, in the early in the Old Testament, the sea was a feared place, obviously because Leviathan is this big eschatological figure that needs to be defeated. Um, they spoke more in terms of uh, of what you would he- see in the hill country of Ephraim, which is which is the first settlements of the Promised Land um, when when the Jewish nation has come out of slavery and is now you know becoming a people in the twelve tribes. They don't use that fisherman imagery as much unless they're talking about the sea, which is this terrifying place. And then the hill country with grapes and vines, which we've talked about, is, is the good place. So, yeah, I do think it does have. I, it would have to do with he was speaking the language of where he was, um, where fishing was a big part of every meal and part of you know the industry that a lot of people were related to. Um, but then, yeah, I do have that uh, heretical question about you know infallibility and, and editing of scripture. So, I thought it was interesting how you, you mentioned that. The fish, I think of that fish as that Christian symbol, but you said um, they thought of it as we are the fi- we are the fish we're, we're caught. And I thought about how C.S. Lewis talks about how he kind of came into the kingdom kicking and screaming like he was caught. He was caught. It yes. Was like, it was like, well, this is all in front of me, and, and I believe it. And so I just thought that was, I, I hadn't really heard where the, you know, just or thought about, you know, that they thought of. Yeah, and it's a, it's it's been a repentant thought for me too, um, because that's a that's a rather. It wasn't that I chose to be arrogant; it's that arrogance happened in my life. You know that I never even think of myself as the fish being caught. I've always thought of myself as the uh, fisherman being called. Any other thoughts, questions? All right, so. Uh, as we come to the close of the, the non-narrative works in early Christianity, we're going to approach a shift in Christian attitudes that we'll see represented um, as we go into the post-Constantinian time. Um, you know, before Christianity is the official religion, and there are political advantages to being in that faith. You know, we see people getting along. We see not you know not a whole lot of fighting. 
over uh, over saying, "Oh, that's a pagan symbol. You know, you need to that needs to be driven out. We will we will kick you out of the church if you associate with those pagan things." You saw people getting along, but then as as power does, um, you know, it, it tends to bring some unhelpful things into the picture uh, that we'll see later. We're also gonna. It's not gonna be a stark contrast. You're still gonna see. Um, some of this non-narrative stuff used, and I believe Brad might circle back because you know he's got a lot of deep knowledge. He might even bring in some works. Um, I've heard he might bring in some bones <laughs> that certain people have said they're not touching for anything. <laughs> I'm all right with that. Um, but uh, after afterward, we're going to see we, we're going to see some more narrative scenes and uh, what's called a visual exegesis. If you've ever looked at the study of the Bible, which is either eisegetical or exegetical, eisegetical meaning, you know, we have this thing that we believe and we read it into Scripture and we make Scripture mean it. And exegesis being more of the uh, the scientific approach to it. So, all right, well, ten four. Yeah, go ahead. At, at what point does the concept of appropriating pagan symbols become a big deal. I mean, obviously it's it's happened from then till now. Right. But at what point does it become an issue within parts of the church that, oh, hey, you're appropriating pagan symbols? Uh, you know, I, I don't know the exact answer to that. It was probably gradual, but my guess is it happens sometime after they start... Uh, I, they start saying bishops can forgive sins, and they give them that power. Um, and they start making like more official roles, and you know, like the the big C church starts happening, and and the the term pope starts getting thrown around. Um, not that I'm anti-Catholic, yeah. but it's just like that's when it becomes a place of power. And power means I'm either in the club or I'm not. And the way that that uh, battle is often fought in religious circles is to say, all right, who's got the right doctrine and who's got the wrong doctrine? Um, and so it gets so bad that, you know, you have these councils called by Constantine, you have the Council of Nicaea, where they're like, look, we need to hammer this stuff out um, because there's a lot of tension. And it gets to the point um, in later Christianity that as these <coughs> arguments go on and people are sort of not arguing over uh, theology as much as they are arguing for power, they're using these as a pretense to sometimes literally burn people. You know, they burn 500 Christians at one time because they don't believe the right thing. Um, so I think the pagan thing was more just the um, the excuse that they would use often to uh, to try to claw for power. But that's my theory. Um, because it, it, it strikes me, it, it struck me for a while that we may be making a bigger deal about that kind of appropriation in retrospect. Mm-hmm than it actually was in the minds of the artists. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, just because I, I think more in terms of, of music, mm-hmm. um, goodness knows that Christian music appropriates the sonic and musical symbols of non-Christian music. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's not like the Christians go, you know, we're going to make our whole new type of pop music and it's going to sound nothing <laughs> like what no. everybody else yeah. is listening to. I mean, it kind of goes back to the, the fishermen and the, that story. It's like you, it's, it's almost impossible to remove that stuff because you don't, when, when you're in the middle of them, you don't think of them as... Or pagan symbols, you yeah. think of them as 
this is what we do. This is what we're talking about. And yeah. and and you can't you can't remove everything that you've done in one culture to create it. I mean, you you can't start a new type of culture entirely from scratch. Yeah, I uh, that reminds me of a. a of an episode of King of the Hill, one of my favorite shows, where there's this uh, there's this uh, lady who's uh, who's made it in the country music scene, and she had started out the Christian scene. And they were like, "Well, how'd you do it?" She said, "It was real easy. You just replace the word Jesus with baby." And, uh, <laughs> so, which you know, there's a lot of like arena rock songs. Well, we're always taking What's that? Work for Amy Grant. It sure did. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus, yeah. Um, <laughs> that'd be a good one. Uh, but they do actually, there are some points at which they try specifically in music to say we are separate from everybody else. Um, and that's the point at which you see debates going on around, you can't even harmonize. There should be one line of song, uh, especially in the monastic movements, uh, where they're going, you, you know, harmony is a sin. So, you want to you know, you talk about debates about having instruments in churches, they wouldn't even let you harmonize. But uh, I think uh, we've got time for one more. Yeah. The idea of conflict within the religions, uh, we talked about there being a time of peace here, sort of, but uh, you have the the, uh, the Jewish community, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, you had, you had these uh, movements that uh, Gnosticism and all that came very violently, uh, some of them violently, of mm-hmm. uh, the Inquisition, or even into Ireland in, the, in our lifetime, yeah. where they were killing each other. A lot of the killing in the Middle East is, has be, been between sects within the Islamic community, where they despise each other enough to go out and kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this something that is inherent in, in religion? It, it does it, seem to keep showing up. Um, how, uh, it seems to cross the boundaries between different kinds of uh, religions. Well, here, here's the way I've always seen it. Outside of, it, or within all religions, I seem to see a pattern of everybody falls into, there's a way of love and dignity, and then there, there's a way of power. There's a way that has an open hand, and then there's a way that has a grasped fist. You mean like, I love you if you believe the same thing I do? <laughs> Well, that seems to be how it works. It's not, yeah. That that can, yeah. Joy, you know, be my brother, or I'll bash your head in. Is the old Irish song. Um, but uh, and I, I'm part Irish, so we've we've been kicked out of Ireland. Um, but yeah, it's it's that who's in and who's out. That's why we have so many churches because we have debates and we go, oh, we're actually the right ones. We're going to start another church, um, and that's this way of power. Being right is a way that people like to be in power. And at what point does it show up in the Christian art? I guess that's where you... Well, I think they didn't have time to argue because they were being persecuted and martyred. And then after that, once things relax, they have time to argue with each other uh, more. And then when they're in power, they've got a reason to be the right one in the argument. You know, you can have plenty of arguments um, with people that don't get heated because you've got nothing to gain from it. Um, But when you're talking about who's right, who's wrong, um, and that's how I'm going to be in power... That's when it gets dangerous. Which so. is a major point in favor of persecution. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we got today. Um, Brad will be back with us next week. So it's good to see you all.